Welcome to episode 206 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, we're going to be interviewing two two folks in London, and uh, appropriately, uh, Maury Schenk in our London office is going to do most of the interview. Uh, uh, we'll be joined by Miles Brundage, uh, who's uh, at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. Only Oxford would say, well, we have a whole study on the future of humanity. I am Shahar Avon from the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge. I only thought that the future of humanity was insufficiently grand uh, uh, for Cambridge to be uh, studying. Uh, they're going to discuss a paper they've written on artificial intelligence and cybersecurity, which I thought was really good. Um, so we'll be joined by them shortly. Uh, but now on to the news roundup. We're going to have Maury Shank, of course, participate in that as well. And we have a brand new uh, contributor, uh, Megan Reese, who is the senior national security fellow at the R Street Institute, a senior editor at Lawfare, visiting fellow at George Mason, former Senator Sass, Senator Sass staffer. Say that five times fast. Um, so welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Gus Hurwitz, uh, uh, one of our favorites, uh, an assistant professor of law in the University of Nebraska Law School, is back. Welcome, Gus. Great to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker. You know the drill. Uh, okay, let's get started. Uh, um, just after our last podcast, there was an argument in the Microsoft Ireland case, uh, and I didn't think it went the way anybody expected. Uh, and uh, this is one where it's a little hard to uh, to count to count votes. At least that's what I thought. Uh, uh, Meg, uh, Gus, what did you think of that? I think that that's uh, exactly right. It was a weird argument, and really the weirdest moment perhaps came at the very, very end when uh, the attorney from Microsoft left with a ominous warning to the court, you are as likely to break the cloud as you are to fix it. I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, I'm not sure if it's not true, but I think it's a, a good uh, uh, existential summary of the case. Um, uh, the case featured also a somewhat surreal, I think, uh, discussion of uh, if you send a robot into a foreign land, what are the metaphysics of accessing data remotely? Um, some uh, technical mistakes in discussion uh, about uh, Section 2702 of the uh, SCA. But I think uh, if we go through our standard vote counting exercise um, with this case, uh, it's hard to tell what's likely to happen. Um, it's not going to be a typical partisan split. Um, Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor, for instance, both seem to be concerned that um, this was an effort uh, by the, uh, the government to do a runaround of important extraterritorial uh, protections. Justices Roberts uh, and Breyer, on the other hand, seem to think this was a pretty mundane comedy issue. Um, that uh, um, magistrate judges deal with on a regular basis, um, uh, so we could just treat it that way. Um, and, of course, ultimate, ultimately, on the existential front, this is an issue that uh, Congress is going to decide in all likelihood. Um, it's a, a pretty straightforward statutory interpretation kind of issue for the court without any major, I think, uh, constitutional questions, um, which is a, a bit of a disappointment because the underlying issue in this case 
uh, how uh, governments access data stored overseas and in other jurisdictions. It's a really important issue from a political perspective, uh, a business perspective, a technical perspective. Um, so it's a nice reminder that sometimes the legal issues don't get to the heart of the matter. Yeah, I thought there were two or three things. I, you, you, you'd think it was important, and yet the U.S. the government said, you know, nobody has really actually objected to this except by filing briefs in this case. A lot of countries filed briefs in the case, and then the EU, after having said, "Oh, this is shocking," um, uh, apparently announced a policy saying, you know, on second thought, maybe we'll just exercise our jurisdiction extraterritorially too um so i'm looking forward to the supplemental briefing on that point uh, uh your your other thought that this was a uh statutory case at bottom uh, i thought was interesting when you look at the questions that came from justices sotomayor and ginsburg where they kept saying well there's this cloud act. It's going to resolve this. Why, why are we even taking this case? Um, which, you know, the, the answer is because four justices voted for it. Uh, I, and it would be remarkable to dismiss as improvidently granted because somebody has introduced a bill to address the problem. So I thought that was either odd or a signal that uh, Sotomayor and Ginsburg didn't think they had the votes for the side they thought should win. Yeah, the uh, dynamic between the court um, uh, and Congress in this case is interesting. Uh, uh, Senator Hatch was sitting in the front row of oral arguments, I understand, uh, said, sending a clear, if not message, reminder uh, to the uh, uh, court that uh, Congress is actively considering this issue. But, of course, that doesn't mean that the court doesn't have a question before it um, and uh, shouldn't necessarily uh, consider this. Um, and my understanding, you mentioned um, the EU, they've waded into this or they've changed their perspective on this, saying, you know, we're going to start to uh, expect data to be given to us extraterritorially too. It's my understanding that that's really a bargaining position, that they're, they're saying, hey, United States, you're going to start doing this. Well, we're going to start doing it. Let's sit down and talk. Yeah, the the problem is it's illegal for uh, American companies to respond to that, uh, so they're going to be a little uh, at a disadvantage. It's because it's not illegal in most cases for uh, data stored abroad to be provided in response to a um, law enforcement uh, order from the United States. But yes, uh, you know, look. Uh, I, I got used to it. The EU always wants to bargain with the United States. They're, they're never satisfied until they've first gotten in our way and then cut a deal and then finally imitated us. Um, and so we'll see that here. Uh, speaking of which, the right to be forgotten, talking about getting in the way of uh, U.S. companies, uh, Google put out a really detailed report about uh, how, about who's asking for and who's getting um, uh, takedowns of URLs. Uh, uh, Maury, I didn't, I, I read it at the end of the day. I said, I said, well, that was really interesting, but I can't point to anything that's extraordinarily interesting with one exception. What's, what did you think? Well, I, I kind of agree, but it, there's a lot of interesting tidbits in there, and I thought I'd just mention a few. Um, Google between May 2014th and the end of 2017, reviewed almost 2.4 million URLs, all of them manually. They didn't automate the process. There's been a slow decline from a big, large number initially, uh, but there's still a pretty steady flow. 
the biggest categories are personal information on social media directories and um, legal and professional information on news or government sites. The highest per capita requesters are Estonia with 12 um, requests per thousand people, uh, France with 7.5, and the lowest in Greece. I guess down in the Mediterranean, they just kind of go with the flow. Uh, overall, there was a 43% delisting rate, um, which is like above 90% where it's personal information, not just something about a person, but their home, their detail, their, you know, address details and things like that. Uh, down to 0% for information about corporations, which don't have data protection rights. And finally, I thought it was interesting that Google Plus and YouTube had some of the lowest the listing rates among social media at 43%, while it was 60% for Facebook. So maybe Google's playing for the home team there. So I thought the most interesting thing, and again, it's a tidbit, was they said most people ask for takedowns of media in their country. Uh, uh, and But then they said... That's 90% roughly of the takedown requests. The other 10% were almost entirely takedowns of U.S. media, which, of course, you couldn't do under U.S. law. Uh, so um, uh, while it's mildly comforting that people are sticking to their own country for their censorship uh, needs, uh, um, when they go outside their country, it looks as though they go to the U.S. first, uh, notwithstanding the First Amendment. Yeah, and, and they pointed out in there that their current policy is to take things down on the national Google site plus on Google.com if it's from an IP address in the country in question where the request came from. But they noted they're fighting an ECJ case from, I think it's from France, where uh, France is looking to require global takedown on uh, French requesters. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, knowing the predilections of the ECJ when it comes to U.S. companies and technology and privacy, they're going to lose. Uh, that's my prediction, but who knows? Um, SEC put out guidance on cybersecurity. Uh, uh, Gus, I didn't see anything that surprised me in there. Is, 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 am I missing something? Uh, I don't think so. Um, it, it's worth noting at the outset that what they released was an interpretation of existing rules. They weren't changing any rules. Um, I actually kind of like the reminder that this effectively is. Um, partially, this was a, a response to concerns from the Equifax breach about insider trading. There was basically a reminder that you should have a policy uh, governing um, uh, this, uh, how uh, company insiders trade based upon this sort of information. Some strong language saying that if there are undisclosed investigations or breaches, uh, no one with that knowledge should be trading. Uh, the thing that I uh, did like about um, this interpretation is it suggests that um, companies need to disclose the extent of board involvement in the risk assessment process, um, which I think is an effective proxy. It's a nice proxy for how uh, uh, companies are thinking about cybersecurity and whether or not, frankly, that's the most important thing, whether they actually are uh, actively thinking about uh, their risk exposure and how to mitigate and respond to security incidents. Um, yeah, that's how I, how I, I read that as just a broad hint that your board better be involved in thinking about cybersecurity. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a pretty uh, a direct, indirect requirement that boards need to be doing this, uh, which I, I think is a good statement. And it's um, 
a important, uh, it's important to remember with the SEC that their goal is to protect investors. They're not a cybersecurity regulator. And a lot of uh, uh, agencies are thinking about cybersecurity, and it's nice to see one staying within its silo on these uh, 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 issues and not trying to uh, become a broad, ill-informed, ill-equipped regulator in uh, really complex issues. And I will note, it's my understanding that uh, the uh, Democrats on the commission wanted to adopt uh, more prescriptive rules, and I'm very glad that that is not what happened here. Well, considering that they have, they're having trouble securing Edgar, which is their responsibility, uh, you can understand why they might have a certain amount of uh, institutional humility. But, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily uh, translate. All right. <laughs> Um, speaking of institutional humility and lack thereof, CFIUS is really feeling its oats where Chinese companies are uh, concerned. Uh, uh, last week, there was blood all over the floor. The Xera deal, which uh, failed, uh, where a Chinese company wanted, a PE company wanted to buy a, a chip company. Uh, CFIUS said no. Cogent, uh, the uh, Cogent acquisition by a Chinese buyer also failed because they had too much data about Americans, uh, is the speculation. Uh, uh, the Genworth deal is apparently on the bubble. They've announced that they filed again, and this time they put forward the possibility of having a third-party monitor who would make sure that they protected U.S. data appropriately, which is kind of, in my experience, the last thing you offer up when you're really desperate because it's expensive and it's hard uh, it, and it often doesn't work. Uh, so uh, the Genworth deal is uh, very iffy. Uh, no one knows how that's going to turn out. And then finally this morning, uh, Cepheus took a remarkable step of saying to uh, Qualcomm that they needed to delay a proxy fight, which would have come to a uh, head this week, uh, by 30 days because Cepheus uh, was trying to decide whether the proxy fight itself, where Broadcom is trying to put six directors on the board of Qualcomm, which would give them an ability to make decisions, uh, whether that's control and whether that's foreign control and whether it's going to be approved are all questions Cepheus is apparently not ready to rule on and it's not ready to have the election go forward until it decides. Uh, pretty remarkable. And uh, now, um, uh, because Megan is the new girl, uh, we gave her all the hard reading, uh, the big uh, 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 reports from uh, uh, Talos and from CrowdStrike on a couple of, on you know, kind of where things in cybersecurity are going. Um, I I thought the one from Talos, uh, which was written by somebody I feel very kind of paternal toward a guy named Paul Rascaneras, uh, uh, who is a Frenchman who worked in Belgium for a long time. And about five years ago, he did a remarkably insouciant hack of one of the PLA uh, attack structures where he said, uh, well, they seem to be using this tool. Why don't I just go look for all of the computers in Hong Kong that are running this this tool and hack them all? Uh, and he hacked them all. He got in. He, he was, in, in fact, screwing with a, a, a PLA uh, attack infrastructure. Uh, and he just ran them ragged, trying to figure out where he was and what he'd stolen. He packaged up their data and exfiltrated it, warned people 
people about the attacks. It was it was hilarious. I think I called him the Steve McQueen of cybersecurity. And he's now uh, writing reports uh, uh, for Talos about who hacked the Olympics. Uh, so, uh, Megan, who hacked the Olympics? <laughs> who hacked the Olympics? That is the big question. Um, so this is this is all stemming from a Washington Post report on February 24th that attributed the uh, cyber attack on the Olympics to the Russian military intelligence unit, GRU. And that's the same group that did the NotPetya attack. Well, this attack did a few interesting things. Probably one of the more interesting is it caused it so that people can actually access their tickets to the opening ceremonies. And the Washington Post set attributed unnamed sources in the American intelligence that set, although said DNI wouldn't comment, and blamed it on the Russians. Well, well, this, these, uh, What's his name? Paul Roskin. Roskin Yes. This brilliant, brilliant person said, hey, guys, let's hold off a minute on attribution. There are a number of things that could be going on here, and it looks like this could potentially be a false flag. He's not discounting the Russians, but he's saying, hey, it could be the North Koreans. It could be someone else. Because this attack stole, basically took different components of known cyber attacks and kind of pushed it all into one package so that it would be really easy to miss misattribute this attack to one group or the other. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, false flags at the Olympics. Uh, um, it, I, I think we should just assume that the attacks were done by Olympic hacker athletes from Russia. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, it probably is the Russians, uh, but they're screwing with us over attribution because attribution has been very bad for, for Russia. Yes. Uh, uh, all right. Um, the EU has given uh, uh, Google an hour and Facebook an hour to scrub terrorist uh, uh, content when uh, the, it gets complaints. That's an astonishingly aggressive timetable. Uh, Maury, uh, is that doable? Uh, I don't know if it's doable. I mean, fortunately, it's a recommendation so far uh, that came out last week following um, on sort of an agreement, a, a code of practice that Facebook and Google had signed up for before, the, it applies to hosting providers, uh, people who host content. So it's not just Google and Facebook, but of course they're, they're the big ones. Um, it would apply to Twitter as well, obviously, and lots of European sites. The one-hour takedown applies to terrorists and related content. It does apply to all um, illegal content online, and there was a real flavor of influence by the copyright industries here. There's quite a lot of talk in the recommendation about uh, improper uh, copyright content being posted and needs to be taken down, although not within an hour. There's a notice and takedown process, and, and this is really, there's a really increasing um, EU and member state law of content regulation and takedown. You're, this is EU level. We've heard about stuff in France, about election content, some stuff in Germany, and I expect this trend to continue. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, it's because, and I, I call this the breakdown in the Magaziner consensus or the Clinton consensus, that uh, nobody should be regulating these platforms because it's too hard and it creates too many problems and we should just, uh, you know, the cure for bad speech is more speech and all of that. And that's just completely collapsing. Even here, um, the Section 230 immunity is going to get a 
bite taken out of it uh, uh, for certain kinds of um, uh, uh, sexual speech, uh, uh, you know, essentially uh, encouraging prostitution, allowing uh, prostitutes to uh, advertise and the like. Uh, and so there's um, uh, the lack of interest in protecting these companies, which are now enormous and seem to be making boatloads of money and able to fi- hire as many Filipino contractors as they need to to meet uh, um, uh, review requirements, uh, is now global, I think. Uh, and if you wanted to get a feel for why conservatives are not uh, saying, wait a minute, why are we regulating here? Um, uh, for those who don't explore the fever swamps of right-wing media, don't worry, I'm here to do it for you. Uh, uh, it, there is apparently a Christian satire site uh, uh, called the Babylon Bee, and they put out a story that said, CNN has acquired an industrial uh, strength uh, washer dryer combination so that they can pre-spin their stories before airing them. Um, which, you know, uh, for Christian satire, not bad. Uh, Snopes, which apparently has a surprisingly lefty uh, tilt, felt that it ought to debunk this story to make it clear that CNN was not buying an industrial strength washer dryer combination in order to spin stories. And so they actually, in a very self-serious way, uh, declared this to be fake. Uh, and then Facebook picked up on that and warned the Babylon Bee that they were distributing fake news and they were at risk of losing whatever uh, their privileges were. Um, they had to apologize about a day later when people pointed out that, you know, anybody with a sense of humor would have realized uh, that this uh, was a fake story. Uh, but the fact that things like that keep happening to sites that are putting out conservative uh, uh, stories has really ev- ev- eroded any um, willingness to defer to big tech on um, content mediation. Uh, and we're just going to see that. Uh, uh, and I'm sure that on the left, there are plenty of people who feel their favorite um, uh, provocateurs have been taken down as well, which means that um, Facebook and Google and Twitter are in a no-win situation in which uh, the enthusiasts on both sides of the political spectrum um, are increasingly of the view that uh, big tech hates them, uh, which means that they are going to uh, have no willingness to stand up for big tech on on these platform immunity issues. I was just—I agree with that, Stuart. Um, you know, and thank you for monitoring the right-wing media. I'm monitoring the somewhat more lefty community here in Europe. Um, my wife recently participated in a consultation at Windsor Castle and sort of what do we do about, uh, you know, questionable stories in the news and inflection, uh, election influence. Um, and I think what we're seeing in Europe is the right uh, equation just balances a little bit different over here. Um, free speech is a less powerful right in some other individual rights are more powerful over here. And that's why it's happening more. But I agree with you that it's a global trend to regulate these platforms more. All right. Just uh, two more stories. I want to add that Megan um, had to read the entire CrowdStrike report, 50 pages, uh, and um, it was a good report. I kind of great graphics and, a, and a, uh, some interesting stuff on trends, but the trends are a little harder to generalize about than, than in uh, past years. So what did you take away from it? 
Okay. So first of all, this report is quite long, very detailed. Uh, there's nothing too surprising if you've been paying attention, but the, I think that some big takeaways are they call it trickle down technology. Folks are hacking into governments, stealing their technology that governments use to spy and then using it for their own purposes. So adversaries are basically taking government technology and using it. I, for I wonder own. if that's really a trend or if that's just eternal blue over I, and over and over again. Yeah, I actually agree. I, I think this happened. It was really bad. You're going to get some, you know, Vault 7, Vault 8 now. So it may keep happening, but it's it's more the same group. Right, and it's the Russians doing it. So yes. they're deliberately uh, releasing this stuff yes. uh, in the hopes that it'll get picked up commercially. Exactly. And then there's a little bit, on, or there's quite a bit in the report on the, the rise of ransomware and how state actors or state-sponsored actors are now using what would previously be considered criminal objectives, so stealing and using that as an overall objective. Well, then that's North tools. Korea. Yep, uh, there we <laughs> so, go. <laughs> so maybe they're overgeneralizing. Uh, <laughs> maybe a little uh, bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, Less I, trends and more. <laughs> yes. All right, but it's still, it is, it is a good report. Um, and last, I just cannot resist pointing this out, that uh, I... The, the uh, mainstream media discovered that Apple was caving into the Chinese government uh, last week. Uh, uh, listeners to this uh, uh, podcast have known that for a year or more. Uh, but um, it attracted the attention of Edward Snowden, who tweeted out uh, a uh, his objection to the idea that a company would pose as a protector of privacy while snuggling up to a uh, post-communist dictatorship. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say, Ed. Uh, I think you have finally jumped the shark. Uh, okay. I, uh, the last topic I wanted to cover, but I will cover uh, with our uh, interviewers, is there's a great three-page paper on the risk of interstellar artificial intelligence hacks. Um, uh, and, you know, I wanted to make fun of it, but... You know, when I read it, I said, yeah, that's, that is how they do it. Uh, basically the, the, the idea is, uh, if we accept code from another country, from another star system, uh, and we worry, and there is a possibility that it's, uh, uh, evil code, uh, it's going to win because it's going to sit there, even if we put the damn computer on the moon and uh, uh, air gap it and vacuum, uh, space vacuum gap it, it's going to say, oh, by the way, we have a cure for cancer. Could you give me like another 20% of computing power for a cure for cancer? Um, and the cure for cancer is going to require that you run some nanobots that they've designed that we don't really fully understand that will add more. So there's no way to contain the technology that we're going to get from foreign uh, uh, star systems uh, if we once accepted. It was really fascinating, uh, and it leads directly into our uh, interview about uh, more plausible and more near-term risks for cybersecurity uh, from uh, uh, artificial intelligence. So well, before I'm- you jump into the interviews, I just wanted to add some extra plausibility to this. Nokia and Vodafone uh, this past week have been discussing adding, installing a 4G LTE network on the moon. And just this morning, I was reading um, a report on security vulnerabilities in LTE that allow a wide range of attacks 
uh, uh, um, with relative ease. So the idea that interstellar actors could uh, uh, attack us from a network perspective is really quite plausible. God, so as long as well, as soon as they find out we're running 4G on the moon, uh, they'll start beaming the attacks directly to it, and and we won't get the cure for cancer. It's really a shock. Um, okay, uh, uh, well. Uh, with that slightly irreverent uh, introduction, I, I hope that uh, Miles Brundage uh, uh, and uh, Shahar Avin are in uh, our London office and ready to talk about these topics. Uh, are you guys there? Uh, yes, we are. Terrific. Nice I, I'm going to hand this over to Maury because he's on the scene. I've got a few questions that I might ask, uh, uh, but um, Maury's going to uh, run the show from here. So um, Miles and Shahar are two impressively young-looking postdocs. We'll take a photo after so we can put it on the blog. Um, the, their report is the malicious use of artificial intelligence, um, forecasting, prevention, and mitigation. I thought we'd start, for listener interest, just some examples of the types of threats you've talked about. And you've tried to focus on threats that are possible either with existing technology or technology you think will be available within the next five years, which I think uh, was a sensible approach, although we'll come on to what might be beyond. I I personally was interested in the past couple of weeks, there's a new new drone from Skydio that's amazingly capable, uh, which might help execute some of these attacks. So maybe you could take at least one from the three categories of attacks you talked about. Sure. So uh, we divide up the threats into three domains. So there's the physical domain, which the Skydio example would fall under, where there's increasing degrees of autonomy in drones, and that could be used to uh, carry out various forms of terrorist attacks. Uh, an example from the political domain would be uh, something like fake generation of video uh, of world leaders saying things that they didn't actually say in order to create confusion or uh, influence elections or just generally uh, interfere with democracies or support uh, the power of authoritarian governments. So uh, while such things have been possible in the past, AI is democratizing and uh, making much more scalable the ability to make fake media. And then an example from uh, the digital domain, which is the third domain we consider, uh, would be automated spear phishing attacks and more generally automated hacking. So Uh, Across each of these domains, there are various aspects of AI that lend themselves to misuse, um, including the fact that it's fairly general and can be targeted uh, to various applications, both beneficial and malicious, and also the scalability of AI as a a digital technology allows uh, potentially much larger uh, forms of attacks than were previously possible when uh, attackers are limited by human labor. So... Now, these are, I mean, one can envision those attacks you just described very easily happening even today. Um, it seems to me there's a problem, though, that we don't know where it's going. And some of our exchanges preparing for this, Stuart pointed out, you know, we don't know the scope of the threat, and we've got the interstellar example, which is obviously not something we created. Overall, we think maybe, we think attackers have advantages over defenders. That's what we've experienced in, in cybersecurity. Um I, I call to mind, you know, Bruce Schneier, who writes about movie plot threats. You can envision a lot of different attacks. So how do we deal with this possible spectrum of where things could go while focusing on those that are really li- most likely and most dangerous? So it doesn't sound like there's going to be any one solution fit all. This is 
why we stress so much the importance of this kind of horizon scanning exercise. So they need to bring together interdisciplinary groups for each of these domains that are going to be are going to look differently. So for physical, your control point might be the explosive. You can have the best drone in the world. If it, all it can do is bump against someone's head, then you don't have an attack. You need to get some explosive and put it on the drone, and maybe that's a control point that you can use. For malicious hacking uh, at a wide scale, maybe you need to be more cautious about how the technology is spread. So we are talking to some extent about deploying some of the practices from cybersecurity, like um, careful disclosure, where you let the vendor know before you publish your attack. We think increasingly this will need to be something that gets picked up by the AI community. Um, I guess there haven't been used to those technologies working in the real world very successfully. Um, and in other domains, there are going to be other fixes. Yeah, I, I was... You talked about um, there was a, a fairly significant section in your report about openness and disclosure, or how much openness there should be. I, you had an, an interesting example of Google Virus Total, where uh, attackers could test their viruses on that and, and see which ones are most likely to be um, most likely to be effective. On the other hand, that's probably why Google has it there. They want they want to see the viruses that are coming out. So I'm not sure that people are going to be putting their zero-day exploits on the Google virus total. But um, could you speak a little bit to this issue of openness uh, or, or not, which seems to be – I mean, it seems to me hard to keep uh, a lot of AI technologies out of the public domain. But you, you seem to think maybe there are some ways we would want to do it. Yeah, so uh, historically openness uh, in AI has mostly been discussed as an, an unalloyed good. So, uh, you know, there have often – Recently, been a lot of calls for much more openness and uh, giving code for papers, uh, which some, uh, with, when you don't have that, sometimes it's hard to reproduce someone's results. And uh, we agree that there are a lot of uh, valuable aspects of openness. But uh, as in, and uh, when you're thinking about things like attacks with or against AI systems, uh, there's a very active area of research uh, called machine learning security, with an example being adversarial examples that. Uh, full AI system. So it's important that there continue to be uh, open domain research about these topics so that people can develop better uh, defenses. But there might be some cases, uh, but uh, continuing the analogy to cybersecurity, where uh, immediately publishing everything isn't the best idea. So uh, we might be in a critical point right now where it's best to have most things open in AI. Uh, but as there are more commercial applications and as these uh, issues become more uh, pervasive in society, it might be the case that, say, many driverless cars and many cloud services and many uh, stoplights and other things are all using a similar uh, form of neural network that has a vulnerability that's discovered. Uh, there could be big safety uh, implications if you just publish that without giving some advanced notification. So we're kind of trying to look down the, down the road and think about, uh, is there anything sensible we can say about when openness uh, would or wouldn't make sense? Uh, if I'll just a few things. Um, so one thing is to say that there's not one dimension of openness, right? There's one decision you can make is, do I publish or do I not publish, or with what amount of detail do I publish? A second question is, when do I publish? This is the responsible disclosure model. A third one might be, I am never going to publish, but I will still make the capability available to the world because I'm going to put it behind an API um, or in some other way have a very strict license protecting this technology. And 
The same debate happens in cybersecurity, where you need to attack white hat hackers so that they can meaningfully go around and attack systems while also not publish their vulnerabilities the day they find them. We see this happening with gain-of-function research um, in genetic biology and biology and so on. And so this is not new. What we are saying is that this is becoming new for AI, and it's high time we start talking about it and use the tools of cost-benefit analysis, um, look at the different um, available mechanisms and make them available. Maybe we need new kinds of legal structures, maybe we need new kinds of licenses, maybe we need, we need, need new kind of brokers that will connect affected parties with researchers. Um, yeah, this is the world we're going to need, whether we like it or not. I wanted to jump in on this uh, um, to ask about um, the use of AI to automate social engineering. And you talk about things that, that could be called that, uh, uh, using AI to uh, better target uh, 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 spear phishing attacks and the like, and to mass to use mass tailoring of uh, spear phishing. But it seems to me you can generalize this more broadly. Uh, one of the great advantages of artificial intelligence, uh, indeed one of its characteristics, is that it passes the Turing test more and more. It can do more things that we can do. Uh, and weaponizing the Turing test so that uh, you can find all of the ways in which humanity fails to protect security for one reason or another, uh, uh, is suckered into trusting uh, uh, things that it shouldn't trust or people it shouldn't trust uh, or just doesn't care in that particular context about security, uh, that as soon as you start to um, apply artificial intelligence to finding human failings, you're going to find a lot of them. Uh, and the only way to fix them, I think, and the only way to provide computer security there is to take the human being out of the loop uh, and to apply AI that is smarter about spotting things that they shouldn't trust than the people are uh, to that process, which means, I think, if I'm reading this right, that you can't respond to any email that AI hasn't reviewed first. And that AI is going to belong to Facebook or Google or the National Security Agency or Ford Motor Company, but it ain't going to belong to you. Um, and so we are ultimately going to have to surrender an enormous amount of our own discretionary activities online to an intermediary who's going to do this sort of, uh, well, let me check it for uh, stuff you won't spot uh, kind of uh, AI that's supposedly protecting us. Uh, it, have I missed the, the future or is this a plausible outcome? Uh, I think, you know, the world you just described isn't that different from the world of today where people are already implicitly trusting spam filters not to screen out good things. And, you know, there's kind of a human oversight role uh, in, you know, making sure that it's doing its job correctly and that you could see that as AI already uh, reading everyone's emails in some sense. Um, so I think, you know, it's not that radical of a vision. Um but I, I'm not sure that we're there yet. So, uh, you know, spear phishing is an example where um, it's relatively uh, offline interaction. So it's not a real-time, you know, in-person sort of conversation with someone. It's, uh, you know, you can invest, uh, the AI could in principle, you know, run, uh, you know, run some examples by a mechanical turker or someone 
to make sure that its grammar is correct and so forth uh, before actually sending the email. Uh, so there could be sort of a human-machine synergy in that case. I don't think we're yet at the point where uh, AI could, uh, you know, do social engineering across all possible domains, but I think that's, you know, the, the, the sort of world we need to think about uh, eventually. So I think it's going to be narrow applications for now, uh, but certainly, you know, your broader point of a wide range of social interactions potentially uh, becoming more vulnerable is worth thinking about now before we get there. You have a great, yeah. great set of pictures. I'll just say you have a great set of pictures in which in a four-year period uh, uh, the effort to create a fake but persuasive human face goes from preposterous to totally persuasive. Uh, and I assume that, that voice recognition, voice imitation is going to go down a similar road pretty quickly to the point where we could be getting fake phone calls from family members uh, asking us to send money uh, uh, with uh, realistic uh, fear notes built into their uh, their message. Yeah, so I, I totally agree. There's been a ton of progress uh but, um, you know, just to, you know, throw some, uh, you know, uh, cold water on, you know, the urgency of, of you know, the, the full-blown uh, version of that threat, um, even for things like uh, speech uh, generation, it's still, you know, you could still think of that as a fairly narrow domain of just, you know, given text produced voice that sounds like it. It's not the full pipeline of, you know, carrying out a conversation in real time, uh, often that, you know, fairly slow to produce the audio requires a lot of data and a lot of human involvement. So, uh, so I think you're, you've pinpointed the problem, but I, I am hopeful that we have some time to prepare. Like okay. Shahar is going to say something as well. Yeah, it was a, a technical point about defenses, right? We hear a lot about we're going to need AI to fight AI. Uh, and there's one obvious case where you can do it. We could say there's going to be some trace in the image or the audio that tells it apart from the real and a human will not be able to pick up on it, but a machine would. Uh, to put some cold water on that idea, if I have a system that can meaningfully tell apart the real from the fake, then I can train my attack system to fool that defensive system. <laughs> um, so I think what we, what we need to look more at is the set of defensive systems that don't come from AI at all. They come from cryptography. If I can sign my email, and I know that the server that hosts the private keys is meaningfully secure, then I can verify the source of that email. We don't see this widely spread now, partly because it's hard to use, partly because we don't always trust the endpoint, but we could, we could be a whole lot more secure with our emails. We don't see those kinds of technologies being developed and distributed widely for images and audio and video yet, but we imagine that might be one world we end up in, and that could be a distributed solution as long as we can fix the UX side of it, which is going to be hard. Yeah, but we'll have to do yeah. it as fast as fast as we as the AI dreams up attacks, which is faster than we have currently fixed anything. This discussion of you know, can you trust anything you receive, um, leads me to what was my favorite quote in your report, which I'm going to read about trust. Even if bot users only succeed in decreasing trust in online environments, this will create a strategic advantage for political ideologies and groups that thrive in low-trust societies or feel opposed by traditional media channels. Authoritarian regimes in particular may benefit from an information landscape where objective truth becomes devalued. It seems to me we're already heading there. And we had on, um, uh, I think about two months ago, Mara Fistendahl, who wrote and wired about China's social credit system. So 
I was interested if you could speak to this, um, both the criminal element of this, of, you know, reduced trust and uh, tricking us into things and the government side of it where, you know, uh, the, the whole democratic system might be threatened by a low trust environment. Yeah. So, um, you know, first of all, I'll make the point that AI can have different impacts in different societies depending on who's using the technology and, and to what end. Um, and, you know, even within, say, a democratic society, we have some, uh, you know, time to think ahead about, uh, what, what we want to prioritize. But, you know, to, to generalize a little bit and, and simplify things, one could imagine an authority, you know, a clean distinction between democracies and, uh, autocracies. And in an autocratic society, uh, AI could be used to, uh, create much more compelling propaganda and uh, increase trust uh, if that if they have sort of a monopoly on control over information. Uh, in a society that is less more averse to uh, you know unified control of information and is more pluralistic, uh, a, a possible impact of AI is to create a much more uh, volume of perspectives. And uh, depending on who uh, takes the initiative in generating uh, fake media. It could be that we end up with a very uh, cacophonous and confusing uh, media landscape and, and information landscape, or it might be that uh, you know those who are most politically, uh, most technically savvy, use it to differentially support their own perspective. Um, and I think we need to think ahead about that. And, and it, it ties into the some of the issues discussed earlier uh, in the podcast about uh, control of social media platforms and, and the role of government. It's uh, we already are dealing with, you know, fake news problems, and uh, it's only going to get more complicated with AI. Um, this um, brings me on to a central point in your report is dual use, that, that AI is a dual use technology. I've actually spent a lot of my career dealing with, and Stuart actually brought me into it, uh, with encryption as a dual use technology and various other ones from an export control perspective. I thought that was a really useful insight um, because it provides an existing framework to to regulate this. Um, take us through your thinking on that. Yeah, so doesn't we have held the term omni-use uh, being applied to AI, and that's probably more correct than dual use. There are a whole lot, many different uses you can put AI to, um, not just, you, and it's very hard to clearly separate them into beneficial and harmful. Right. It's not even clear that generating audio from a short recording of someone is necessarily a malicious use. It is what you then do with the content you have generated um, and whether you have gotten consent in the first place and so on and so on. The part of the worry is there is no point at which you can say, oh, this is a bad application then. Um, we will regulate this bad side of AI while keeping all of the good side on effect. Um, and and it, we've seen the same thing with encryption, right? The crypto world eventually ended up with everyone having access to strong encryption, which is probably how it should be. This is math, ultimately. We need other ways of ensuring that people are safe and secure, other than limiting, despite everything that we have said. Um, it's probably not going to be just limiting access to the technology, uh, and definitely not indefinite limiting access to the technology that is going to work, uh, which is why we talked about delaying, we've talked about licensing, and so on. So while dual use is a useful framework here in terms of, yes, we need to start thinking about all of these bad actors going to be using this technology for all of these, and probably many more purposes in the near and medium future, 
it's not clear to me that any existing dual-use me- regulation measures are going to apply to the court. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, it's quite complicated, actually, and, and uh, just to build on what Shahar said, uh, you could distinguish the input into an AI service uh, as including various things beyond just the software. So uh, there's talent required, there's the software, but then there's also data and hardware. So at what point do you say that's the dual-use part or that's the part that should be regulated? It's really unclear. Um, but fortunately, there, uh, that complexity uh, is uh, somewhat um, uh, reassuring in, in the sense that uh, there are focal points that could, in principle, be regulated. This isn't something that uh, we're suggesting you know, happen immediately, but it's uh, good to know that you know, ultimately computation and, uh, artif- and artificial intelligence has some physical basis. So there's computing hardware that uh, is required to do it, and that you know, could, it could, in principle, be an easier target for regulation than the more uh, immaterial, though, you know, uh, not totally immaterial, but more immaterial software. Um, and uh, and it's also uh, worth considering that uh, hardware is disproportionately in the hands of quote unquote good actors right now. So if you know it's, if AI enables us to, us to scale up both attack and defense, then it might be good that uh, say Google and um, various governments have a lot of computing power that can be used to find these vulnerabilities before someone with uh, you know relatively much less computing power, uh, you know, cyber criminal uh, does the same. Can I well, can maybe. can I jump in for uh, to 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 raise a separate question? This is the last uh, question that's been bothering me, and it's a more general one, but I think very uh, pointed here. Um, the best, or many of the best AI techniques involve giving a machine an outcome you want it to achieve and then letting it try all kinds of things in a kind of evolutionary um, effort to uh, succeed and it will come up with solutions that uh, humans wouldn't have come up with. And if you want it to prosper against a particular adversary, you just throw it in against the adversary and let each of them uh, work on each other to try to uh, defeat the other, and you quickly move to a level of uh, 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 attack and counterattack that um, uh, humans might not have uh, adopted. Um, so in those circumstances, if you put that in the context of cybersecurity, it seems pretty obvious that attackers are going to want to use those evolutionary uh, Darwinian uh, approaches to improving their uh, attack and that the machine is going to figure out sooner or later, just as machines that are playing computer games have learned that the, they can hack the other machine in order to win the game rather than follow the rules, uh, it, the machine's going to figure out that one way to prevent a uh, defender from succeeding is to distract them with something else like calling in a SWAT raid on the uh, on their home or uh, uh, burning down the, the the factory around them while they're trying to defend their uh, uh, their resources I, you know you, you very quickly get to the point where you've got an AI engine that is killing people um, uh, just because of the goal it's been set I I don't see an obvious way to prevent that, but uh, I'd appreciate your views on it. Uh, yeah, so I think that, um, you know, again, uh, we're not there yet uh, in that AI systems are pretty narrowly constrained and, you know, either, uh, you know, in the technical terminology, their action space is relatively limited. So, you know, they, a, a hacking system typically is not able to also, uh, you know, make 
make phone calls to, you know, the SWAT team or whatever. Um, but over the long term, you know, you're pointing to a more general problem of how do we uh, make sure that we understand how these, what these systems are doing. And this is a very active area of research in the AI community. Um, there are, you know, regular conferences and lots of papers about understanding how these systems work. Uh, but the question is, you know, will those actually be used? Will people, will there be sort of an arms race to have more and more autonomous and, uh, you know, evolving systems? And I think that, uh, you know, takes us somewhat outside of the malicious use framing because it's also potentially a collective action problem. If there are uh, countries involved and if attackers are using these, uh, these uh, sorts of approaches, will, uh, you know, one country uh, retaliate by, you know, also doing the same? And it's, uh, you know, also related to the lethal autonomous weapons debate where there's concern that there'll be sort of a race to make faster and faster decision-making systems with wider and wider scope. So this is something that... Uh, we have a little bit of time to prepare for, but it's uh, potentially a very uh, concerning problem, not just in the digital space. All right. Um, um, Maury, yeah, do you have any more, more questions? Well, I was going to say one thing that's coming out of this is there are existing frameworks that, that work for this, you know, the, the collective action things you were talking about, dual use, where, you know, you, you mentioned encryption. Well, everybody has access to strong encryption, but we do, as you said, Miles, some of the stuff is, uh, you know, the hardware can be restricted, and that's where we ended up, that a lot of products are quite restricted by the U.S. and 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 Europe. I also thought it was interesting, you have quite a lengthy appendix in, on cyber, learnings from cybersecurity, so not legal frameworks, but technical things. Are, do do the two of you have background in cybersecurity? I thought it was a, re, a very intelligent appendix, and you, you put it in an appendix, I guess, because it was very uh, technical. We were hoping for the... We're trying to do various things with this report and start to do all of them in the body of the text. One of the things we're trying to draw inspiration from the really excellent paper, Concrete Problems in AI Safety, which really took a fairly amorphous problem and turned it into a quite concrete research agenda. And we were trying to do the same for this domain, except there is no just one domain that is going to deal with malicious AI or malicious users of AI. There are going to be several. Um, one of them will be probably in some new intersection of AI research and cybersecurity. And I, mean, I have some background in it, but also we were very lucky to have cybersecurity experts both at the workshop uh, that we got to a snowballing approach and then co-authors on the report who help us write and validate those sections and make sure that we don't say anything silly. Um, but the future of this is to have ongoing workshops on cybersecurity in machine learning conferences, ongoing machine learning workshops in cybersecurity conferences, similar kinds of joint processes that I think there is probably a lot of money to be had in this domain and so probably a lot of the value will get picked up with products. For the trickier part, we are going to have, we're going to need some more leadership or wise regulation to just cross our fingers and hope that it happens. So that, well, I didn't have any more questions. Then let me let me ask because uh, uh, Shahar uh, raised this. Uh, uh, do, uh, Miles Shahar, do you have any upcoming events, workshops, uh, speeches where uh, listeners uh, or papers uh, that are coming out that that listeners ought to be watching for? Uh, nothing, uh, nothing specific planned yet, uh, but uh, our. Our information is on the report, so if anyone wants to get in touch, we're always happy to uh, find people who are interested in these issues. I've got a conference I'm going to try to report for after this. So. Okay. Uh, Stuart, before you uh, 
take us to the end, I'll just let you know that somehow we managed to get two of the much-coveted SEPTO Cyber Law podcast mugs here in London. Excellent. So Miles and Shahar will receive those. Terrific. 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 Yes. Well, I'm 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 delighted that the uh, uh, the future of humanity will include the cyber law podcast, uh, uh, and so will the uh, uh, the study of existential risk. Because I think that's entirely appropriate that our podcast should be part of both of those considerations. Okay, thanks, uh, Miles Shahar. Thank you very much for participating. Maury, uh, thank you for uh, taking the uh, uh, laboring or in the interview. Thanks also to Megan Reese uh, and Gus Hurwitz. This has been episode 206 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Remember, we are actively considering whether to seek a part-time intern in our Washington office. Uh, keep an eye on Steptoe.com slash careers uh, if you're interested uh, because, you know, we'd rather have a fan than somebody who doesn't know what uh, the Cyber Law Podcast is uh, working on the podcast. Uh, uh, send us your guest suggestions, uh, and if they uh, the guests come on the uh, program, we will send you one of our coveted Cyber Law Podcast mugs, which we now know will travel transatlantically uh, send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com coming up we've got Nathan Sales ambassador at large for counterterrorism at the State Department Pete Kronos uh, who's the author of a forthcoming book on cybersecurity and also the chief information security officer at Turner uh, among other guests uh, we hope you'll join us for those on other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology security privacy and government 